Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. When ChatGPT3 came roaring onto the scene a few months back, the AI-powered chatbot shocked the world with its ability to spit out coherent essays, fully functional computer programs, and even reasonably funny jokes. That shock gave way to mild relief when some of the system's limitations became more obvious. It failed simple logic tests, and those essays that it writes, while convincing on the surface, often aren't backed up by, well, facts. Okay, so us humans still maybe have a bit more time before our planned obsolescence, right? Well, of course, the pace of AI change doesn't run on a human schedule. Already, ChatGPT is getting an upgrade. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Menconi. Today on the program, we're going to talk about the latest advances in AI, including the release of ChatGPT4, the successor to ChatGPT3, and a significant step forward. It's said to perform better on math and logic tests, and it's also capable of responding to image prompts as well. So, with so much changing so fast, we're going to slow things down for a second and try to get a handle on where the AI revolution might be leading us. The problem is we're racing full speed ahead, and so we're not really taking the time to do as much uh, safety testing as we should be. To help start us off, we're going to welcome on our first guest, New York Times tech columnist Kevin Roos, who writes about artificial intelligence. Kevin Roos, welcome back onto the program. Thank you for having me. So when you were last on our program two years ago, uh, you had written a whole book called Future Proof, which offers practical advice for how us humans can make our way in this ever more machine-powered world. Um, So in a minute or two, I'm hoping we can get something of an update on that advice now that 
Uh, we're coming face to face with this new set of AI systems. Uh, really feels like it's uh, nipping at the heels of us white collar workers in a lot of ways. Um, but let's actually start with a more basic question. You had a chance to use ChatGPT4. Curious for your thoughts, what has actually changed here? How big of an advance are we seeing over the last model, ChatGPT3? So GPT-4 um, came out just very recently, uh, within the last couple weeks, and it is um, very good at some of the same things that ChatGPT uh, before it was good at, but it also has improved in a lot of ways. So on a number of the tests, the way, the way that researchers test these systems is often by giving them just sort of academic tests, things like you know simulated versions of the bar exam or the AP exam or the SATs. And in a lot of those areas, um, GPT-4 uh, has made quite large uh, leaps. So ChatGPT, the previous version, um, I think got some, something like a 30th percentile score on a version of the bar exam, whereas uh, ChatGPT got uh, something in like the 90th percentile, or uh, GPT-4, sorry, got in the something like the 90th percentile on that same uh, kind of simulated bar exam. So it's quite good um, at answering kind of questions. It's also good at reasoning um, through its logic, why it gives the responses it does. And it's it's what is called multimodal. So this is maybe the biggest difference over chat GPT is that GPT-4 can do things like interpret images. Now, this feature has not been publicly released yet, but they've sort of showed off what it can do. Um, in one demo, they um, took a photo of a refrigerator uh, the inside of a refrigerator and uploaded it into GPT-4 and said, what recipes can I make with the ingredients that are in my refrigerator? And the, the AI system was able to look at the photo, correctly interpret what was in it, and then use that to come up with a list of recipes. In another uh, demo, they uploaded a photo of a, a sketch of a website, just like a notebook sketch that you'd make with a pen and pencil um, in your paper notebook, took a photo, uploaded it to GPT-4 and said, make this website. And it did it. So that is uh, the kind of thing that is possible to do, do with GPT-4 that was not possible to do with earlier models. It just seems like a startling pace of advancement. Uh, hearing all of those capabilities, uh, even just a couple of years ago, it would have been really difficult to imagine a computer system being able to do that. Um, at, at the same time, it's kind of a difficult moment to make sense of, because on the one hand, all of that sounds amazing, but we do get this sort of steady, steady stream of articles coming out, the, these naysaying articles saying, well, it seems impressive on the surface, but you kind of dig a little bit deeper and there's real limitations here. Uh, there's, you know, you still really need humans to be doing a lot of this work for stuff that you uh, actually care about. With this new release of ChatGPT4, how are uh, how how close are we getting to that breakthrough moment where we really are going to see a lot of tasks that we once needed for uh, humans to do exclusively? Uh, this computer system will be able to take over. Uh, this, I think, we're already at the breakthrough moment, and we're kidding ourselves if we think that these systems, as imperfect as they may be, um, are not capable of replacing a lot of human workers. So, a lot of the AI researchers that I talk to, they talk about something called a capability overhang, which is essentially when the AI systems have more abilities in them than we are using them for. So, right now, I think a lot of experts would argue that we are in a, a capability overhang. We have these tools. They're capable of doing a number of very impressive tasks uh, with startling efficiency and accuracy. And still, most people are not using them. So, you know, even though ChatGPT has, you know, millions of users and he's this huge 
you know, global phenomenon. Most people are not using this stuff in their daily jobs. So there will be some time required for kind of industry and society to catch up to what these models can do. But I've been very surprised at how useful it is in my own job. So I now use uh, ChatGPT and GPT-4 as a kind of writing assistant. I have it, you know, analyze my writing and poke holes in my logic and suggest edits. And it's been very, very useful for me for that and for a number of other things. I recently used it to help plan my kid's birthday party. So mm. that is the kind of thing that um, that I think we're, we're starting to see happen. And uh, it's just going to keep rippling out and, and developing. Uh, we're we're going to keep finding out new things to do with this technology. I, I got to admit, hearing you say that does send a little bit of a shiver down my spine. Um, where what are the industries that you expect this is going to show up first in? Uh, you you say that there's already use cases that are going to be practical even uh, at this moment. Where, where do you expect that to be showing up first? I think my general thinking on this is that any job that can be done in you know entirely in front of a computer and remotely is very susceptible to displacement by this new kind of language model AI. Um, you know, AI, it's not very good yet at manipulating objects in the physical world. Um, robots, you know, we, we, we don't have robot plumbers or robot electricians or robot welders. Um, those jobs, I think, are pretty safe from displacement by at least this wave of AI tools. But a lot of jobs that can be done in front of a computer, um, jobs like, you know, marketing, jobs in sales, um, technical jobs. I mean, a lot of the jobs that are going to be affected by this technology in the in the most near-term scenario are programmers because these models are capable of writing code. Um, so you can go in and say, you know, build me a Chrome extension. Uh, this is an example I saw recently. Someone said, um, build me a Chrome extension that allows me to turn any website into pirate speak. Hmm. Um, and and you know, GPT-4 was able to do that. Um, and so if you are a coder, this has just a, made it very fast for you to build new things, but also potentially given you a little bit of a startle because now maybe you're not so necessary anymore. Speaking once again with Kevin Roos, tech columnist for the New York Times, who, who uh, writes about artificial intelligence. And so that all raises another question that I think people are debating right now. That is whether this is going to replace workers or whether it's going to be a tool that will make workers more effective, more efficient? Basically, is it going to augment how we work or replace us entirely? I guess here it probably, again, is going to depend a little bit on what your job is and what sector you're working in. What are your thoughts on how that's all going to break down? I, I think that AI will both augment us and replace some of us. Hmm. Um, I, I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. And we see throughout the history of technology that new technologies, whether it's you know the steam engine or electricity or the mechanized factory in the 20th century, um, they do displace some workers. They also create new jobs. And so the big question is, you know, well, how many new jobs and will they be available to the people who are displaced as a result of this technology? Technology. Um, but I think one sort of misconception that people have about AI or automation is that it displaces people directly in a kind of one-for-one -one way. So, you know, one day you show up at work and there's a robot sitting in your chair and your boss <laughs> says, you know, I'm really sorry, uh, but we, your services are no longer required. That is usually not how it happens. Instead, what happens is 
some new company starts that does something uh, using AI, using these tools. Um, and because they're using these tools, they only need, you know, for one person for every 10 people that a company that is not using these tools would. And so this smaller, more efficient company gradually sort of takes over for the larger, more slow-moving company. And as that happens, the workers at the larger company that are impacted by that, maybe they get laid off or maybe they retire and they're not replaced. But the the, the market moves from one that is largely human-based to one that is largely automated. And is there a way to stay on the better side of that equation? I mean... There's all if you if you go on Twitter right now, it seems like every other tweet is somebody talking about the the four things that you need to know about how to make chat GPT four make your uh, job easier for you. I mean, if, if if you can be the person who's getting those tools, getting that uh, as you did, getting that, you know, AI assistant in your job, making you more efficient. Does that stand you a better chance of being one of the folks that uh, gets to stick around? I don't think that it necessarily does. I mean, I, I think it may, for for some people, make them uh, more efficient and, you know, they'll, they'll be able to kind of use these tools to get more done quickly. But if you can automate your job, someone else can also automate your job. That's, a, that's another thing that we know about these technologies. If you, you know, if you're a programmer and you can build a tool that allows you to do, you know, you know, work twice as fast, um, then your boss is going to see that and is going to say, well, why do I have, you know, 200 engineers? Maybe I only need 100 engineers. So that's what's going to happen, I believe, with some of these tools. But the, the thing that most people can do to prevent this kind of displacement is to develop uniquely human skills, skills that these AIs can't replace. And there are a number of these things. These, these models are not uh, omniscient. They're not all powerful. There are a lot of things that that humans can do that these AIs still can't. And so I think we need to figure out what those things are and, and try to develop those as quickly as possible. And it's, it's not going to, the answer to this is not going to be working longer hours or trying to compete with the machines. It's going to be sort of figuring out the gaps in the AI capabilities and where we can provide value in a world where these AIs are doing a lot of work. Are you surprised at how fast this technology is advancing? Uh, I mean, Chat GPT-3 came onto the scene uh, late last year, just about the beginning of December last year. Here we are just a, a few months later, and already people are saying that this new version of it is a, a huge uh, step forward. You know, it, at, at this pace, it, it kind of feels, you know, you're talking about finding the gaps in the AI's capabilities. At this pace, it really feels like that's going to be a moving target that we're going to be struggling to keep up with for basically forever. So, you know, I'm curious for your thoughts on the pace that we're seeing uh, this rollout. Is it surprising you? And given that pace, how, how much hope do we have of keeping up? Yeah, the, the pace is incredible. I mean, when I wrote my book uh, a couple of years ago, I thought maybe we had you know, five or 10 years to kind of adjust as a society to the capabilities of these tools. As it turns out, we had about a year and a half. Mm. Um, and now we, you know, we have these systems, they're out there. All the biggest tech companies in Silicon Valley are racing to put out their own versions of ChatGPT um, and build them into as many applications as possible. So yeah, I find it very difficult to keep up with the pace of innovation here. And I also think that, you know, we as a society are still wrapping our brains around 
what it means to have AI machines that can do this kind of work. I don't think we've really absorbed that or even really started yet. Most people still have no idea what this technology is and what it can do. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I suppose I can be counted among them. Um, but I guess we're all going to find out together, won't we? Uh, we have been speaking, once again, to Kevin Roos. He's a tech columnist for The New York Times. If you want to hear more of his thoughts on AI and more explainers on just what exactly is changing here, uh, he and his colleagues are going to start putting out a newsletter in the coming week on all those topics. It's going to be called On Tech AI. Kevin Roos, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today on the program, ready or not, the AI revolution is on its way. In fact, depending on who you ask, it's already here. We're considering how our world might change now that OpenAI has released a major update to its already shockingly advanced AI-powered chatbot, ChatGPT. Meantime, of course, many other companies are hard at work on their own AI systems as well. Driving an innovation cycle that's moving so fast, it makes you wonder how us puny humans are expected to keep up. This track that we're on towards rapid technological advancements and perhaps rapid changes in society as well, it all just feels inevitable, unstoppable, unchangeable even. But our next guest has been speaking with a lot of leaders in the AI field who are making the case that not only can we slow down this development, but that we should. That guest is Sigal Samuel, a senior reporter for Vox's Future Perfect and co-host of the Future Perfect podcast. She just wrote an article for the site called The Case for Slowing Down AI, and she joins us now to talk about it. Sigal Samuel, welcome to the program. Thanks. Great to be with you. So let's start with not the how, uh, but the why. When you speak with leading AI experts, what are the sorts of concerns they raise about advancing AI too quickly? I would say there are two main buckets of concerns. One is what you might have heard talked about in the context of AI ethics. You might have heard of AI bias. Um, so these are ways that even present day AI systems can reinforce biases against women, people of color, uh, and other people. And, you know, you might see that in the context of a hiring algorithm or maybe a, a mortgage, a lending algorithm that's discriminating against some groups of people because of the way the AI has been trained. Um, so that's like one very serious bucket of concerns. There's a whole nother bucket of concerns, which is sounds a little bit more out there, but uh, it's not actually that far fetched. That's sort of the risk that AI might pose very serious risks to humanity, potentially one day even existential risk. Um, you know, we're talking about the possibility that AI could one day actually destroy humanity. Hmm. And, you know, that's very speculative. But I would just note there was a survey last year of AI researchers where nearly half of the respondents said that they believed there was a 10% or more chance that the impact of AI would be extremely bad, for example, human extinction. So, you know, this this is, um, it's speculative, but it's not out of the question. Yeah, well, when the end of the human species is on the table, I guess it's a good signal that it's time to 
hit the pause button maybe, think about what you're doing, uh, consider all the possibilities. But what would that look like, uh, hitting the pause button when it comes to AI research? I mean, slowing things down, are, are, are there really ways that this technology could be made safer? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there are tests and evaluations that can be done of the technology to see if it does, uh, if it behaves in certain weird ways that we don't want it to behave. And I know that when we talk about AI risk and, you know, even speculative stuff like potentially wiping out humanity, people might wonder, how could that happen? You know, why would an AI want to destroy us? Um, And it probably wouldn't per se, but the concern is more that there can be sort of accidental misalignment where, um, I'll give an example, you know, let's say we create an AI and we say to the AI, hey, we want you to calculate the number of atoms in the universe with as much precision as possible. Okay, that sounds fine to us. The AI goes and and says, hmm, the most efficient way for me to do that would actually be to uh, release some weapon of mass destruction, like a, a you know crazy virus or something that wipes out all the humans so that the AI can then get uh, access to all the computer power and, and infrastructure on earth. And then, so the AI does that and it, it uh, ends up beautifully rigorously calculating the number of atoms in the universe. So we got what we asked for, but obviously not what we want. Uh, that that is an example of what AI researchers call the alignment problem. Uh, and there are ways to check and try to evaluate whether the AI you're building is um, functioning in ways that are like different from what the AI developer actually wants. So those tests are really important. The problem is we're racing full speed ahead. Uh, and so we're not really taking the time to do as much uh, safety testing as we should be. Hmm. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I imagine a, a lot of folks would roll their eyes if you raise the the Terminator uh, uh, possibility or the yeah. Matrix possibility. That does sound very far-fetched, but really if this uh, artificial intelligence has even a little bit, if it, if it's even a little bit off course with what we want it to be doing, if it controls enough things, if it's in enough parts of our lives, that could have pretty big consequences. So again, some uh, circumspection perhaps called for. Once again, we are speaking with uh, Sigal Samuel, a senior reporter for Vox's Future Perfect. Um, now you also raise in your article some of the objections that uh, come to mind when folks talk about slowing AI research down and probably first and foremost is the question of can you really slow research like this uh, down? You know, when it comes to Silicon Valley, if there's a billion dollars to be made by spending a million dollars on R&D, somebody's going to spend that million dollars and pick up that billion. It just it almost feels like a fact of nature. Uh, Given that dynamic, given how much money is on the table, and given that there's plenty of people that are ready and willing to keep pushing this train forward, how do you stop something like that? Yeah, so the first thing I think is there is very much this myth of technological inevitability, this idea that technological progress is inevitable, trying to slow it down is futile. Um, This is a myth, uh, I would say, that the tech industry often tells itself and tells the rest of us. And I get how it can kind of seem compelling because as you're saying, like 
if there's these huge profit incentives and also prestige incentives, you know, people want to be able to say, I was the first one to go to market with this, to come up with this amazing new technology. When there's such incentives, it can feel very hard to resist that. But I think the answer then is not just to throw up our arms and say, okay, it's totally inevitable, but to say, all right, well then how do we reshape the underlying incentive structure that's driving all the actors? Uh, and so there's actually a lot of different possible ways to do that. The uh, one very obvious one is laws, right? We could we could have new regulations um, that, that limits uh, the ability to do certain things. Uh, and some lawmakers are interested in exploring that. Um, there's also other possibilities. So um, knowing the fact that um, it takes a lot, a lot, an incredible amount of computing power to develop these very fancy AI systems nowadays. Um, well, we know who has the, the greatest incentive to rush on these projects. It's companies, it's people in industry. Um, you could try to shift some of that computing power more to researchers who are in the academy, so to academic researchers, um, who usually maybe don't have uh, the resources that a giant company like OpenAI has. And you might want to do that because the academic researcher probably doesn't have as much of an incentive to rush full speed ahead to bring a product to market, even if they haven't done a ton of safety testing on it. Uh, other possibilities include changing the publishing ecosystem. So instead of uh, publishing in, in papers, uh, sorry, in journals, uh, right away, any new advances in, in how to build these AI systems, we could change the publishing ecosystem so that uh, the, the journal just releases the fact of a certain publication, a certain discovery, but does not really release the details of how the company or, or the academics achieved that result. Uh, and that way you're not accidentally helping other teams go faster on AI. Hmm. So, I mean, it, it sounds like what you're calling for really is a, a reframing in how we think about this technology, you know, uh, perhaps putting it in the category of uh, potentially dangerous technologies like uh, nuclear research or or genetics research. Um, so that's that's an interesting reframing um, for us average consumers. Though I mean, uh, myself included, I I feel like in some ways all of this is above my pay grade. You know how how fast we should be uh, researching AI technology, the uh, potential uh, extinction events for the human race. Uh, here we are we're just trying to keep our heads above water, kind of uh, spellbound by what this technology can do, doing our best to make it work for us. Um, is, is there a role for us average consumers to play in all this? I mean, or perhaps a, a mindset shift that we should be going through as well? Totally. So I think you used exactly the right word there, spellbound. Uh, we are kind of spellbound a lot of the time by, by these new AI technologies. And I get it. It's it's kind of cool. You know, you, you, it feels like magic. You put in a prompt in chat GPT and one second later, the Oracle replies, right? It, it feels kind of magical, but I think there is a place for the average consumer to do something here. And this is part of what we were talking about earlier in terms of how do we change the incentive structure for these tech companies? Well, one way to change the incentive structure is thinking about how we, the public react to these splashy new AI releases, 
are we reacting with, you know, celebrating, uh, you know, the, the people and the companies who are releasing these technologies, or are we kind of publicly shaming them? Are we raising the alarm? Are we, you know, how, how are we reacting? If we react in a, in a way that's like, oh, I'm just simply spellbound. This is so exciting and fantastic. Why would the companies ever slow down? But if instead we react with a lot of concern and find ways to come together and publicly in, in larger groups raise that concern, well, then it starts to seem like the companies might want to pay attention because they do care about their reputations. That affects their bottom line. And so they might be getting concerned about reputational risk to themselves. And that might actually help align, realign their incentives a little bit. All right. Well, heady times where it feels like uh, so much is changing so fast. Uh, again, just honestly hard to comprehend it all. But we do thank you for helping us understand it just a little bit better. We have been speaking one last time to Seagal Samuel, senior reporter for Vox's Future Perfect, again, the co-host of the Future Perfect podcast, just wrote an article for the site called The Case for Slowing Down AI. Seagal Samuel, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll talk again next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time, baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.